So we are picking up here in our discussion of the elements of worship in the gathered church. We spent some time uh, talking about the uh, moving parts of a church in terms of a definition. Now we've moved into, if I can say it, the mission of the church and particularly the myth- mission of the gathered church. Um, yeah, we're going to distinguish here the, uh, the elements of worship in the gathered church and the mission of the scattered church, uh, which is what you're doing day by day, uh, you know, every other day of the week, uh, when you're not gathered for church. And so we had six elements here that we have identified. It's, uh, there, there's a number of folks who have, who've tried to identify the elements of worship. Uh, some see a few more, some see a few less. Uh, but, uh, what I've tried to do in terms of my organization is use two governing texts. And I think they're particularly valuable because both of them include these articles. Uh, they don't always show up in your English translation, but they do in the Greek and they're, and they're, they are, uh, startling for their inclusion. Uh, so first Timothy 4.13, until I come be devoted to the reading, to the exhortation, to the teaching. And in Acts 2.42, they continue to meet together in the temple courts, devoting themselves to the teaching. So that one's twice. The fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And uh, it's that the that sort of identifies the elements of worship. Um, these are the things that uh, ideally should be included week by week uh, in a worship service. Um, now, there's other things, of course, the church does. Baptism, uh, I, th- I don't think it's included here only because it's not something that's done regularly. It's done irregularly. That is, whenever we have people who are converted. Uh, but it's not something that is in every every service. Uh, the breaking of bread, of course, is disputed as to how often that ought to be done. Some uh, suggest it should be done weekly, others monthly, um, and still others, it's more of a quarterly kind of a thing, and a real big deal is made of it. Um, I don't know that the scriptures say uh, with, with certainty that uh, this has to be done every week. It seems like that was the early church practice, and perhaps because of this, uh, this, this, this series of elements of worship, uh, perhaps is an indication, but I don't think it's strong enough to say that it's a command of scripture that we have to do that weekly. Uh, of course, there's a lot of circumstances of worship. Uh, so again, uh, we're not talking about everything that can happen in the life of the church, but we do follow the regulative principle of worship that we don't do things uh, routinely in worship that don't fall into these categories. Okay. Now it, 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 there, there can be some debate as to exactly how these things are done. Do we stand when we sing? Do we sit? Do we kneel? Uh, do we raise our hands? Uh, it, it, the scriptures aren't clear on those circumstances of worship, but the elements uh, seem to be pretty s- s- sacrosanct. Uh, we do these and, and nothing more. Um, so we're going to see if we can't define all these uh, as we go through. Last time, we spent some time, I think, going through the first. The first of these is the reading, again. Um, and uh, as the ESV reads it, the public reading of scriptures. It's something of an interpretive gloss there. It doesn't actually say that in the original. Uh, but, but it does probably reflect the intention uh, that Paul has. 
so uh, this is that this indicates that routinely, I would think on a weekly basis, you ought to be hearing the scriptures read. Uh, and in fact, the fact that it's first on the list probably points, at least in some sense, to priority. Uh, we need the, the 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 goal of the gathered church is to expose people to the Bible, and I don't think that that has that need has diminished uh, just because we all have Bibles now. I think uh, it's it's still something that's necessary. We need to be reading the scriptures, and I'm pretty sure that you have scripture readings in your church. Um, again, this. It, most likely, unless your church is really unusual, uh, the, the, the length and number of these readings have diminished over time. The early church, uh, typically gave it, had at least two readings, one chapter of the Old Testament, one chapter of the New, and uh, our modern readings tend to be shorter. Um, I'd like to think we could, we could, you know, over time, uh, whet the appetite of, of the church for the longer readings, because uh, we can expose people to the scriptures uh, more uh, more thoroughly with that. I, I think I said last time, if you have, you know, two chapters a week, you can get through the whole Bible in 10 years of Sundays. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a noble goal that a church can have to expose its people to the scriptures. So the reading. Secondly is the exhortation. I don't have... Too much of a description here because I think this is probably the most familiar of all of the elements of worship and one that tends to dominate in our services. So it's, it's probably not one I need to really elaborate on because you're doing it, right? Uh, so the sermon. Okay. Uh, so we, we should be, and, and again, it's the exhortation. It's not so much the idea of general exhorting that we do, exhort one another. We ought to be doing that. But I think that that's not what is intended here. Here is a specific exhortation, a weekly exhortation uh, that is likely a reference here to the sermon. So be devoted, Paul says to Timothy, to the sermon. And it's an element of every worship service. Again, this takes, uh, this, this exceeds, of course, just the reading of scripture to include examination, explanation, and application of the text uh, to life. So of the sermon. Thirdly here is the teaching. And this one is the one that perhaps is the, uh, uh, is the, uh, the stone in the shoe here. Uh, and yet it's probably of all the elements of worship mentioned in the scripture, in the New Testament scripture, this is the one that's, this is the one that's mentioned most frequently of, of all of these that are here. The teaching. And it's, it's, it's strange to us because we don't have the teaching. You know, you come to church, We'll have the announcements and the offertory and the sermon and the singing, but we don't have the teaching, right? So the, the teaching is not usually an element that we, uh, um, mention, uh, or, or have as part of our liturgy, whether formal or informal. And so perhaps that this surprises you, uh, be, to see this term, the teaching, uh, sometimes called the tradition. Uh, or, the, and so, so there's these two terms here, didaskalia, the teaching, and the apostles didache, same, same, uh, same translation, uh, but perhaps a more formal term. Uh, in fact, in the early church, uh, one of the most highly regarded books that didn't make it into the Bible, you know, there's, 
some questions as to New Testament canon. Uh, do we have the right 27 books? Are there other books that perhaps should have been included? And usually the one that leads the pack uh, of of options that perhaps could have been the 28th book is usually this book called the Didache. Okay, so uh, it's a it's a book. It's a it's a summary of early Christian doctrine. So it's if I if I can put it this way, it's you know for better or worse, we should probably think of this something as the, as a confession, a church confession, or perhaps a creed. Now, some churches, of course, do uh, recite creeds. Um, many churches have confessions; they're rarely read, but Occasionally, uh, you'll you'll see a church do that, and I think it's a good practice to uh, review uh, your uh, doctrinal church's doctrinal statement because sometimes we can lose sight of things in it. Uh, but uh, so 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 is that what we're supposed to be doing in order to have this element in our worship? Well, I say here the early practice of first developing and then singing or reciting creeds and confessions is well established and really originate in the scripture. Probably the best known biblical creed we have is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where Paul starts in verse 3 uh, to say, I, I delivered unto you that which is of first importance. How that one, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scripture and was seen by the, by the 12 and by others. And, and this 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 has a has the feel of a close summary, a creed of the essentials of the gospel. Okay, we have as many as thirteen of these uh, in the in the New Testament, depending who's doing the counting. Uh, and oftentimes, you can spot them uh, in modern translations by having them they're set off like poetry. Uh, so, if you have a Bible that sets off poetry as sort of in in, in you know indented. Uh, that's that's often a clue here that the translators believe that this might be a creed or a confession. Uh, another famous one is in Philippians 2, uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not think uh, equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. And so it's, it's, a, it's a well-known, well-worn uh, statement of Christology, right? Um, and so these these appear to have been early creeds. Uh, they have something of a cadence to them, uh, which suggests either that they're poetry or perhaps verses of song. And so it's hard to know exactly which it is. It could be either one, could be both. Okay, uh, but it, but it appears here uh, that uh, the tradition of singing is probably where we're most likely at least in our modern church, to pick up this element of teaching. Okay, so in songs, uh, and I think it kind of helps us to, it helps to inform us what we should be singing about, right? We know we're supposed to be singing psalms and hymns. And probably when we're thinking in terms of hymns, this is, this is probably what we're talking about, okay? Doctrinal summaries put in verse so that we can ruminate on them, recite them, sing them together in unison uh, so that we these things become sort of ingrained in our thought by repetition, okay? And so this is a very important thing that's, that, that we find in the early church, this idea of, of repeating, reciting, and singing 
the uh, the the essentials of faith. Okay, uh, so that's probably where we see it most. I I I, I think it's a good idea to use creeds. Um, it's it seems a little bit highfalutin for our you know in in our modern day we have something of an informal liturgy. Um, I'm 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 kind of fond of a little bit more formal liturgy in which a a creed would not feel out of place. But I, I know that in most evangelical churches, that's, that's, and it's almost taboo, but it's too bad. Uh, but uh, creeds and confessions, I think are a good thing. They've been a staple of Christian worship in every era, basically, but our own. Uh, those they're, they've been quite common. Uh, again, um, the songs and uh, also uh, catechisms, I think are, is a, is a, is a way of doing this. Uh, that's, Again, been lost in our informal approach to worship, but I think is is well worth reviving, uh, particularly with children. You know, to uh, uh, to learn the, the the essentials of the faith, and it doesn't have to be done this way, but it, but it ought to be done in some way. Uh, in fact, I I read a startling statement by a, by a friend of mine, Carl Truman, wrote a book together with him a few years ago, but he has a book called The Creedal Imperative, where he's He's encouraging churches to pick up the practice of creeds and confessions. And he makes a startling statement that it's going to rub you wrong when you hear it. But if you think about it, uh, perhaps it uh, becomes easier to hear with, with the, with the repeating of it. But he said it's, 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 it's almost more important to teach children creeds and confessions and catechisms than it is to memorize scripture. Now, that's a, that was a startling statement because we tend to think, well, how could that possibly be? How could how could a summary of doctrine be important, more important than scripture? And I don't think he's saying it's more important. But as far as as far as the repetition of it, the summaries of what we believe in some ways uh, probably have a more compact way of communicating to us. This is what our church believes. And if they're based on scripture. Uh, then they can be quite useful tools. Uh, but I say here that I'm, I'm, I am waging a battle here that's, that's an uphill one, uh, within, within modern evangelical life. Uh, the idea of rote learning, um, and formal liturgies are, have really fallen on hard time. But at the same time, I, I, I think I, I can put it out here. Uh, so try and do that. And, and I think. Also, it, it it suggests that the songs that we sing, we shouldn't just you know you know use a song up and then discard it. I think that's again become something of a habit uh, within modern church life. You you get a song, you use it for a few years, and then it's old, and then you discard it and pick up a new one. And 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 what what tends to be lost is the value of of cross cross generational memorization and familiarity with common songs that we share across generational lines and i think that's that by losing that i think we lose quite a bit you know um you know i i, I think in terms of you know when the titanic went down uh, the, the band plays nearer my god to thee and and there were enough people on the ship that knew what the song was that it was useful, right? Because it was part of a tradition, uh, that was, that was, that was there. Uh, I think that's what the Psalms do for us, right? Well, we, we memorize Psalms for that purpose. 
we memorize the 23rd Psalm. Um, and, and it becomes quite valuable to us, uh, when we go through the valley of the shadow of a de- shadow of death and we don't have time to memorize it then. And we don't have the words to say because of our grief. And yet because we've memorized it whether it's just because we memorized it word for word or whether we, we learned it in, in a song, it's there, as uh, as is often said with the Psalms, so that we have something to say when we have nothing to say. And uh, so, so there's some real value, I think, in the songs and the memorized portions of Scripture and creeds uh, that, can, that can really bolster our faith in difficult times. And in, and in good times too, but uh, uh, but I think particularly in difficult times. Okay, the fellowship is next. The fellowship, and again, just like the exhortation, I don't think it's just general, you know, fellowshipping that we do here and there after the service or before the service. Again, that's something we ought to do, but I but I don't think that that's what is intended here by the fellowship. Again, with the with that article there, it's a component of worship, a well-worn and well-known piece of the worship service is the fellowship. Okay. So what, what do we have here? Uh, probably, uh, the basic term here of fellowship is sharing. In fact, most of the time when you see this term in scripture is not so much sharing of conversational variety, but sharing of resources. Okay. Uh, so we share with one another, uh, not only in terms of, you know, sharing our feelings and sharing our experiences with one another, but sharing our resources. And perhaps uh, we have here a reference to the offering. Okay. In fact, three occasions I have listed here, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and then Hebrews 13. These four passages use the term koinonia, fellowship, with clear reference to the the collection, the, the offering. And so it, it, it could well be, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily ready to die on this hill, uh, but it could well be that this idea of the fellowship uh, should be part and parcel with the offering. Okay. And so it gives us a sense here, uh, that uh, we should be collecting. Um, and it shouldn't be just something that's done privately per se. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm probably going to bump up into a, into a, a controversy here. Um, that uh okay so is it okay if i if i give my offering online from the uh you know and put it on auto pay uh is that is that appropriate uh, yeah i'm not i'm not prepared to say that uh, a church that does that is is you know in error or in sin at the same time i think there is something valuable about the communal sharing and the the passing of the plate uh that perhaps would be included in this again uh, we may be talking about circumstances rather than elements, but most of these are are communal elements of the worship service, and so this would be exceptional if it's not that way. Okay. Question that sometimes comes up, and it's going to come up more than once here in this course, is what are we sharing? Who are we sharing with? Okay, and uh, so what? What? Why are we collecting the offering? And is the goal here to share with people outside the church? And I just want to sort of, you know, 
put the shot across the bow here, uh, because this is one of the one of the concerns I have when we're talking about the mission of the church towards those that are without. Really, the only institutional expectation of the church towards those with that are without is evangelism. That's not to say that the church cannot do something as an institution uh, to help people who are in need outside the church. But when you look at the koinonia, of the sharing that takes place in the life of the New Testament church, it is a sharing of resources that privileges those of the household of faith, you know, do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. Um, and, and then also for the, uh, for the mission of the church, you know, you, you put money in there so that you can have a pastor so that the, uh, so that the, the, the missionaries can have the resources necessary to go out and do their thing. Um, and so, and so that seems to be where the lion's share of the koinonia, this, this fellowship is directed. Okay. Uh, that's not to say that individual Christians don't have a responsibility to their neighbors to be neighborly and to, to share resources and such. Uh, but the, but the institutional giving to the church seems to be directed most significantly, overwhelmingly towards institutional needs. Uh, and then the, in fact, this idea of koinonia, the fellowship with one another sort of, sort of, uh, that cements this idea, right? That the, that the primary function of the gathered church is to serve one another. And so we've got these one another passages, 55 of them. Uh, that, uh, that seem to be, uh, dominating the, the mission of the gathered church. I think sometimes we get that reversed, right? Okay. If we, if we give, you know, if, if, if we, if we give enough to the people outside the church, then they're going to like us more and start coming and then we're going to have success in our evangelism. But that doesn't seem to be the pattern of, of scripture. Um, can some of that be done? I mean, is it possible for us to, you know, make some sort of a provision for the poor where, you know, people would come by, you know, get soup or, you know, some sort of a closet where you have some resources available for people? I don't think it forbids that, but that doesn't seem to be the, the dominant norm in the New Testament either. Okay. I don't know if you have any questions or thoughts on that, but, uh, uh, we'll, we'll come back to it. Yeah, Sharon. You're muted. We used to participate in something called um, ChristNet. And the churches would take in the so-called homeless. Mm -hmm. Well, in my opinion, it got way out of hand. Because people, I mean, we had the frequent flyers. They were there every year. Now, are are you helping them? But, you know, they're supposed to be in the in there for 30 days and then they're supposed to be able to get on their feet and go out. But but they're back all the time. Yeah. Um, they don't want to hear scripture. Their attitude. This has been my experience. I don't know about other people, but they're the attitude of many of them. Not all. I mean, some of the people were very appreciative, but a lot of them was just what are you here to give me? And I don't I don't need to listen to you and I don't want to hear this gospel stuff. And I'm here for what I can get, and then I'm going. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's a fine line to 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 toe here because there is a sense in which, you know, you can do things in the life. And in fact, most churches do. They 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 have some sort of event, 
something attractional. You know, we can have a dinner together, you know, wild game dinner or, you know, we can, we can golf together or something of that nature. So we can have opportunities for the gospel. And, and so, so I, I want to make sure that I'm not saying you can't have, you can't try to produce opportunities for the gospel. Uh, but there's a long history of the church trying to use poverty relief and, uh, things of that, of that nature as a, as a, as a platform for the gospel that have had, that have ended poorly. I think we even have Jesus himself as our example here, right? You know, he's come to the end of, of Matthew 12, you know, this, 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 you know, this, this hinge in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden he starts using these parables and people start leaving and the disciples are beside themselves and say, you know, what are you doing? We need to do more of these miracle things because, you know, feed more of these people because, you know, you're sending away. This is not good. You know, this is not good, uh, you know, church, you know, church growth kind of strategy that you're developing here. And, uh, and Jesus says, well, you know, actually, I, I'm not going to waste my resources for those who are chasing me around just to get their stomachs filled. I mean, that, those are the, that's the language he uses. Rather, I'm going to give a message to those of you who have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Okay. And, and obviously we're not talking about the church at this point. I mean, it's, it's, it's what's going to be the church, but it's not really church yet. Uh, at the same time, I think we have something of a pattern established here, uh, that the church gathers, um, for these internal functions. Uh, it scatters then for these external functions. You know, when, when you go out from this place, you know, you go away from the church, and you have interactions with your neighbor. It's not that you just can't do anything nice for them. That, that's not at all. It's, it's the point is that it's not the church's responsibility institutionally to be nice to your neighbors. It's your responsibility as a neighbor to be nice to your neighbors. Okay. And so again, don't don't hear me saying you don't have to be nice to people. Um, what I'm saying is it's not the church's responsibility to be institutionally or formally nice to large groups of people as part of its mission. If, if that, does that make sense? Dr. Snowberger, no. I was just going to say amen to your uh, comments on teaching the teaching. So. Okay. I, I wish we did a little more, little more of that. Um, I don't know if it's because people, they hear the word catechism and they think Catholicism or, or, uh, cause I remember when I was young Baptist church, uh, we, we did as kids, we started going through, I think they called it Spurgeon's Catechism at the time. And I don't remember much. I just remember the first one, Chief End of Man. But, but I can see the real value in some of that teaching. Yeah, I think, I think there's probably a, a sense in which the Roman Catholicism is part of it. Uh, but, but, uh, I think it's, it's as much, as much the dead orthodoxy of 19th century liberalism that, that, that did away with those kinds of things because that, that, that memorization catechisms, creeds and confessions were, were really part of the church up until the fundamentalist modernist controversy and the, and the emergence of an evangelical movement. Um, and, and there, and it's always been a hallmark of evangelical and, and fundamentalist movements to be suspicious of organized religion you know 
the and 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 with good reason. The denominations let them down, right? Right. The denominations became, you know, a, a, a holes of of dead orthodoxy, and it's and it's and it's wrapped up in these formal empty liturgies and these these creeds that everybody knew but nobody believed, and so there was this there, sort of this this visceral reaction to formal liturgies, uh, to catechisms, to creeds and such, uh, that's persisted with us to the present day. But I, but I think it's a little bit of a, a pendulum swing. Like you say, we, we probably should, we would do well to, to come back a little bit to that. Yeah. I, I had never heard the apostles creed till I was in college. Yeah. Uh, Paul, Back when I was in Minnesota, it seemed like it was there that that I picked up on this thing about giving, and there was kind of an emphasis there on on all all of your giving needs to be through the local church, and you know I you know that did I I never did uh, I I never did see scriptural warrant for that, uh, and I just you know what what are your thoughts on that? Completely disagree with with that that philosophy. Correct. Uh, so I agree agree with you. Uh, so yeah. Um, in fact, I, I I have a friend that used to you know when any, and whenever somebody came up to ask him for money for whatever cause or whatever, that was his answer. I give all my I do all my giving through the church, and I and I was like, no, no, that's that's not right. I you do need to be giving your giving through the church, but. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. So there's a, there's a sphere of giving that is the church, but there's also a, a civil kind of giving, a neighborly kind of giving, uh, okay. that, that really doesn't have so much to do with the fact that you're a Christian as it is that you're a good human and, and Christians should be good humans, which means they should be good neighbors. They should be good workers. They should be, philanthropic and charitable people um, because they're good people. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Next element here, the breaking of bread almost certainly uh, is not a reference to just the eating of meals together and refers to the Lord's table, uh, which we're going to discuss at some length uh, below. So I'm not going to spend too much time with it here. But it's one of the two formal rites assigned to the church, the other being baptism, the ordinances of the church. And the primary function of both is to define and to celebrate community. Now, perhaps that's a little bit of a startling statement because we tend to think of them as as, uh, pictures of redemptive truth, and they are that. So there is that vertical dimension here. Uh, I, I want to be right with God. And I, so I get baptized. I, I, I want to continue right with God. So I practice communion, but actually both of these have a horizontal a- aspect to them. Uh, that again is, is sometimes un- underplayed in our churches. Baptism is the entry right into the local assembly. Communion is the continuation right within the local assembly. And the goal of each is to celebrate the community. Celebrate one's entry into the community, uh, or to celebrate the communion of the community, which is why we call it communion. It's not just communion with, of the individual with God, but uh, the uh, communion of the church with itself, with the, the, the membership. Uh, 
And so uh, the horizontal dimension, I say here, probably takes pride of place in the New Testament scriptures. We're going to spend a little bit more on that later here. Uh, and so uh, baptism isn't mentioned here, I say here, and we already mentioned that because it's something that happens irregularly. Uh, but uh, the, the table is something that should happen routinely, whether weekly or monthly. It should be uh, often, as, as often as you do this in remembrance of me until I come. Right. And then finally here, the last element that's mentioned here are the prayers. Again, the article suggests that there existed a very well-known and firmly established pattern of focused prayers that were universally a part of the liturgy of the apostolic church. Um, the fact that modern churches have retreated from this practice is dismaying. I, I, I can't tell you the number of times I, 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 and to, to, I'll, I, I do a lot of preaching in churches, right? Uh, when, when, when the pastor is out of town, he's on vacation, somebody dies, there's, yeah, well, for, so I do this, this quite regularly. And, 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 and I, I recognize that in situations like that, usually somebody who's not normally in charge of the service is running the service. And so I'll, I'll give them this, you know, I'll I'll give this uh, caveat here. At the same time, I am stunned by the number of churches in which I've, they've gotten to, you know, they've gone through singing announcements and offering and, and there hasn't been a prayer. Or perhaps the only prayer is, you know, the offering prayer. And, and I, and I'm like, wow, where, where's the prayer? And, uh, this seems like it was, it has been, and it has been throughout church history, a very dominant portion of the, of the service. I mean, we, we hear about the Puritans and their pastoral prayers that were sometimes 15 minutes long, a, a sermon within a prayer. Um, and I think sometimes, again, this is, this is something we've sort of, uh, moved away from. And certainly the idea of rote prayers has, has disappeared, uh, in evangelical life. So the idea of reading a prayer or, or memorizing a prayer is, is, has really fallen on, uh, on hard times. But this was a practice in the early church, the prayers. And it's in, in the plural here. So probably we have the idea of multiple focused prayer. So uh, maybe there'll be a call to worship. Uh, the prayer of, of confession and assurance is, is, a, is, is a prayer that frequently shows up in liturgies. Um, then there's the pastoral prayer, which typically is focused towards uh, uh, the, the, the physical needs of the membership. Okay. And so the you know the oftentimes it's called the pastoral prayer because it's often the pastor who does this. He, he prays through the church uh, uh, roles, as it were. Um, and uh, so, so it appears that in the early church, there were these multiple focused prayers that were a routine part of the, uh, the liturgy. And uh, it is astonishing to me at times that this point needs to be argued, but we need to pray in church. <laughs> Uh, and we need to pray substantially in church, just as we need to read the Bible and read the Bible s- substantially in churches. But these things, I think sometimes we don't review them. And, uh, we, we, we tend to, you know, these things tend to slip over time. And so I think it's helpful for us to review these, these things. Okay. 
So those are six elements here that seem to show up pretty routinely in, in lists of this nature. Any questions here on the elements of gathered worship? So that's the mission of the church to itself. When we come together, we do these things for each other and to each other. We also, yeah, Wes. Okay. Uh, I, 15 minute long prayer by the time. <laughs> that just, that just, I would fall asleep. I mean, I, I, I that, you know, uh, I, I had, Somebody that in my family I want to identify, but to ask the blessing at the table, and he would preach in his in his prayer, and I, man, I thought, you know, thank the Lord for the food. Let's eat. Let's go. Come on. And you know, I'm sorry, you know, maybe that's you know, too much, but I, uh, you know, wow, 15 minutes. Whew. Yeah, and and if I if I can. Uh, yeah, 15 minutes does seem a little bit long. At the, at the same time, it's, it's one of those things that I think with, uh, given time and the develop, the cultivation of an appetite for things, we can sustain these things for long. I, I mean, we, we listen to a sermon that's more than 15 minutes long. At least at your church they do, right? Um, and, and, and why is that? Well, over the course of years, there's been the cultivation of an appetite for that. And coupled with the fact that you have a guy who gets up there and preaches pretty well. He's not boring in his delivery and he's prepared, polished in his content. And so it is easier to listen to someone do that for a longer period of time. I think the same thing can be true of scripture readings and prayers. Um, I think with with a little bit of practice and the cultivation of an appetite, we probably could sustain a little bit longer scripture readings and prayers, uh, you know, if, if we cultivated that. So, yeah, fifteen minutes is long, but, uh, but but the Puritans are sort of famous for those. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on? Have you ever been at the church where it's like? during the congregational singing and they'll say, greet someone behind you or shake someone's hand. Or, and I always cringe. Like, <laughs> I don't like that. And maybe that's just bad of me, but I just feel like it's so contrived. Like I'm yeah. just, I'm just a bad person, but I mean, I'd rather recite a creed or <laughs> in, in unity than do that. I, yeah. I don't like doing that. It always feels so uncomfortable. Yeah, you're right. It does seem contrived. I think, I think sometimes that, uh, that part of it may be a personality thing. I, I'm, I'm with you on this, but I think part of it is personality. I don't, I don't do well flitting from person to person having small talk. I'd rather have a sustained conversation with someone. So, so I don't really care. I know some people. They just, they just live, they feed on that kind of a, kind of a situation. I don't, uh, I'm with, I'm with you. Um, I think oftentimes that's put in there just to facilitate fellowship, whether or not successfully, or at least to appear welcoming. I think sometimes it actually, you're right. It sometimes sends the opposite signal that this church is weird rather than welcoming. 
<laughs> I think of a visitor, for instance, uh, seeing that happen. But yeah, I, 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 I don't really care for the practice. Um, and I, and I'm hesitate, hesitant to be too, too dogmatic on that because lots of church, I don't even, maybe your church does that occasionally, but, <laughs> uh, but, but I, I think you're right. Maybe it's something that should be, uh, curtailed a little bit. Okay, so that's the mission of the gathered church. The mission of the scattered church. Okay, so what do we, what is our goal as we go our separate ways? Well, unlike the functions of the gathered church with our manifold, the mission of the scattered church seems to be much more singular. Or to go out and seek conversions among those who don't know Christ. Go, therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them teaching them, etc. Um, and so the New Testament model of evangelism is primarily a go and tell model rather than a come and see model. Now, in the Old Testament, there was more of a come and see approach because the only place you could worship legitimately is at the temple. Uh, you couldn't. It, 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 so it was more of a come and see. Uh, the, New, the New Testament sort of, this is, where, this is where it's just completely opposite, right? It's a go and tell uh, model. So we're, to, we're to be going out and telling and, and not that you can't do some come and see in the life of the church, but that doesn't seem to be the norm. Okay. Uh, the, the evangelism is something that's carried out by individual church members as they, as they, you know, as they scatter into the neighborhood and into the workplace and, and, and so on and so forth. That's where evangelism, I think, is predominantly to occur. And so, and I know your church has a good emphasis on that. Uh, that, uh, that's, that's where evangelism, evangelism is not primarily about big events at the church. It's not to say that you can't have a big event at the church, but that's not where most of the hard work of evangelism takes place. Um, and so we should be going out and telling, okay? And so the question here is, that, well, isn't evangelism also a purpose of the gathered church? Well, in evangelical life, that's often been the case. One of the major functions of the church is to attract and evangelize the lost. But I say, I say this is unfortunate, as this understanding tends to hobble the preacher's goal and the preaching of the whole counsel of God. If, if, if you're constantly thinking, okay, I have to be careful what I say because there might be unbelievers here. Um, I think sometimes you end up, not preaching the whole counsel of God, or perhaps don't get very much past the basics of the gospel, when that's the, you know, that's the crying need often of, of a starving church is to, is to get the meat of the word. Okay. Uh, that unbelievers will sometimes be among us is clear. First Corinthians 14, 24 and 25 talks about this. And, you know, when, when you come together, uh, don't do weird things. Uh, you know, Prefer the, uh, the, 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 the ordinary gifts, uh, because if they see too much of the strangeness going on, they, they're going to actually be turned off. Uh, prefer the gifts that are edifying because then people will say, you know, the, you know, the Lord is here, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's not so much hearing a gospel message perhaps, per, per se, but rather seeing the church in action. 
a, a group, a body of believers who love each other, who are concerned for one another, who edify one another, who who who, obvi- who have obvious concern for each other, meet each other's needs, both physical and spiritual. That's that's where the uh, the attractiveness of the church is seen. In fact, right, isn't that right in the in Jesus' farewell address here? How, how are they going to know that you're my disciples? Well, because you've got unity with one another, even as there's a unity within the triune God. Okay, that's how they're going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one. And so that seems to be uh, the platform for evangelism that we find in the gathered church. But predominantly, uh, the scattered church is what carries out uh, the mission of evangelism. Okay. Let's move then to our next topic here. Got a few minutes that we can uh, start on this. And that is church membership. Okay, so we've already established that in order to have a church You've got to have a group of people who are regenerate and who have been baptized. That is, they've been vetted for the legitimacy of their profession and have been granted access to the church, right? The baptism is the entry right of the church. And so there's a vetting process whereby the church says, we are going to baptize you into membership. Okay. And that's, 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 that's the totality of what the church does. The church doesn't simply vote someone in um, and, and observe a baptism. It's we we have we have examined your faith, and, and oftentimes it's you know in in the context of someone giving a verbal testimony in front of the church. Right? Uh, we have examined your faith. We have found you to be a legitimate believer. And we would like to invite you to be among us by baptizing you into our fellowship. Okay. So that's what's, what's being said there. And so what, what ends up happening is you have a group of people who are regenerate, who have been baptized, who have been vetted, who've been accepted into a number. And what we have is a de facto membership. Now, now maybe, maybe the early church did not have so much a formal membership. Uh, perhaps not quite as formal as we have today, but they, they definitely knew who was in and who was out, right? And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about membership, okay? Now, many, I say here, eschew uh, the idea of membership. Others view it as optional, favoring instead some sort of an individualistic, eclectic approach to church attendance. You know, yeah, I don't want to be tied down, uh, whatever, uh, most who do favor membership regard membership as strictly voluntary. I can come in and you almost are obliged to accept me and I can leave wherever, whenever I want without really consulting anybody. Uh, I think that's part of our sort of American individualism, uh, that, uh, that this is, this is, this is a, a, an individual voluntary decision to be part of this group. But it's actually, I think the other way around. The, the group says, we want to have you. Uh, and if necessary, the, ju- the group says, I'm sorry, we have to exclude you. Um, rather than me being the arbiter, me being the sovereign in the situation. Okay. It's the, it's the church uh, that makes this decision. In fact, we'll find some interesting things in church history as we work through this material. Hopefully it's interesting to you. Okay. So. Let's look at the biblical material, and I think we can establish pretty well 
that membership is a biblical idea. You know, the word doesn't show up, but the idea is there. And I think we can establish it pretty easily here. So let's, let's go through this. The fact of church membership. You see here, the, con- the concept of an unchurched believer is foreign to the New Testament. Salvation and baptism de facto placed one into the local baptizing body. That was the function of baptize, baptism. It brought you into the local assembly. The letters of the New Testament were written in large part to churches. The one another injunctions demand some sort of a continuing formal Christ, a set of Christian relationships. Who is the one another that we're talking about? We're not just talking about, you know, when it says love one another, just love indiscriminately anybody around you. It's love each other within the context of this church. And so there's, 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 there's boundaries, there's per, parameters, uh, that the, that the readers would understand. Love one another within the life of the church. And all these one another passages should be thought of in those, in, in that sense. We're talking about how we are to conduct ourselves within the household of God and with the people of God. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, so this, these one another passages, I think, are important to us. Um, in fact, much of the revelation of the New Testament cannot really be applied apart from the life of the church. I mean, how do you do a one another if you're all by yourself? That's um, not possible. Now, Hiscox notes, I've mentioned him a couple of times. He wrote a, a very key uh, polity manual back at you know, the end of the 19th century that has been uh, well-worn and cited over the years. And so he's a, he's a, uh, a Baptist polity guy of, of bygone years, but he's still cited quite frequently, just, just so you know who he is. Uh, he notes here that the local church is sometimes called a voluntary society. That is, no one can compel a person to be a part of your church, right? It's not a state church where you have to be a part of the church in order to be, you know, keeping the law, as it were. Okay, it's a voluntary society. But I think sometimes when when you hear that, a voluntary society, it's something I can take or leave. I, I, it's, it's up to me. But that's not what he means by it. Uh, the idea of church membership being an optional uh, concept really is foreign uh, to the church. Okay, so... Once the body acts to receive a member, uh, he ceases to have really volunteer status. He's, he's actually a part of a family now. Uh, you, you're not a, you're not a volunteer dad or, or a volunteer son. You know, you're part of a family now. And so once you have been incorporated into that, this volunteer status sort of goes away. Okay. So we have responsibilities. So how do we know there was a membership? Well, first of all, there was a role maintained. How do we know? Because Acts 241, 3000 souls were added. The number then rose to 5000. So they're keeping, they're keeping a tally. We also find that membership standards are enforced with church discipline. If he refuses to listen to them, this is the last step of church discipline, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, so, you know, what you, you've, you've actually got a group of people that come together uh, to determine, you know, who's in and who's out of the church. Okay, which implies then that there must be some sort of at least an informal list of who's in and who's out. In fact, 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 actually used those terms because this is another church discipline passage. This is of a, of a man who has his, his uh, father's wife as a, as a sexual consort. And uh, Paul says, you need to judge that person. He said, but then he qualifies here. You, you, you don't judge those who are outside. That's, that's not the role of the church. Rather, you judge those who are inside. Okay. So remove the wicked man from among yourselves. God will take care of the people outside the church. We don't have a responsibility as the church uh, to, to, to govern the morality of society in general. Okay. We do have a responsibility to govern the morality of the membership of the church. That's what church discipline is all about. So you have to know who's in and who's out in order for those verses to make sense. So there must be some sort of a list. Okay. Again, here in Second Thessalonians, a, another church discipline passage. If someone doesn't obey our instruction repeatedly over the course of time, take special note of him. Don't associate him with him. Okay. It doesn't mean you can never speak to him at all, but he's not to be thought of as part of the assembly. Uh, don't give, bid him Godspeed. Don't, don't let him think everything is okay. Okay. Uh, so, so these are the people who are inside and they're to be the objects of church discipline, but those who are outside are not. Church, dis, uh, church decisions imply a membership. Select from among yourselves. Well, who's yourselves? Well, everybody apparently knew who was the group we're picking from. Seven men of good reputation. The apostles and the elders later in the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Well, who are their own men? Again, there, there's some sort of defined body of people that these, these people are part of the church. In fact, in Timothy, we actually see sublists of specific members. Uh, so within the larger list of members, there is a list of widows. That is those who are, who come under the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the benefits, beneficiaries of the, of the church because they are poor. They have no husband. They have no income. And so the church takes care of them. And then Paul says, okay, create a list of these people. And this is the qualifications for getting on the list. Okay. So not only do we have a list of members, we have a sub list of members with specific qualities uh, in order for them to get benefits of, of, of church membership there. We find also, number five, that many New Testament passages make no sense apart from local church membership. Uh, the whole church could all be gathered together. Well, it implies that there's a fixed body of known per- persons that can all be together. Same thing with the communion passage, you know, uh, in the, the main one there in First Corinthians, uh, First uh, uh, Corinthians eleven, you're supposed to tarry for one another, wait for one another, make sure that everyone's there before you start the communion service. Okay, well, who's everybody? Well, everybody who's supposed to be there is there. You know, all the members have have been able to show up. Again, the many passages that speak of being a, among you, a believer who is among you, and an outsider. So there's those who are in and there's those who are out. Okay. So it's pretty clear, uh, that the, the, the con, the, the, the perimeter of the church is defined here. Um, 
the many one and other passages we've mentioned already don't make any sense unless there's others that are a defined group. And then church leader, Christian leaders are shepherds of particular and identifiable flocks. And who's your pastor responsible for? Everybody in Trenton and Brownstown Township? No. He's responsible for his flock, which is a defined group of people. Okay. Um, and so uh, again, I think all of these things come together to suggest um, rather certainly that there was some sort of membership list that would have been maintained in the life of the early church. Again, it's not called that, you know, you don't, you know, you look at a concordance for, for membership. It doesn't show up in the Bible, right? Uh, at the same time, all of these pieces come together to demonstrate that there must be some sort of perimeter, some sort of a parameters on what a local church is and who's a part of it and who's not. Okay. So we've established that there is membership. Uh, then, uh, we'll come back next week and uh, start talking about the purposes, uh, for, uh, for church membership and, uh, the responsibilities that we have to each other. Okay. Uh, we often talk about the responsibilities that the pastor has. Uh, sometimes we don't think about the responsibilities that we have to our to each other and to our pastors uh, and for our pastors as well. So we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time on that uh, next time. But uh, anything here on the, just the establishment of church membership here before we uh, fall tonight. Okay. Well, if not, then we will uh, go ahead and uh, let you go here. And uh, thanks for coming, coming by and uh, we will see you uh, likely uh, Lord willing next week.